0: Welcome to the Small Business Administration Award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's September 5th, Tuesday. I hope you had a great, long weekend and holiday. And got a little rest, and maybe even got a little work done ahead for the future. We've got a fantastic show for you today. We're gonna start off talking about chocolate and meet an incredible chocolate entrepreneur. And since we recorded this, I have sampled and tried it. It is absolutely delicious. After that, Robert Cody will be with us. He is an intellectual property attorney, and we will be talking about his idea that to protect technology, you need to give it away. Great idea. We will learn about that, but let's get started. First up today, we have Justin Frank Polger, the chocolate entrepreneur. He is the CEO of yes. Cacao as in that delicious chocolate. He eats a half pound of it a day, I think, and we can call him officially the minister of chocolate. Justin, welcome. How are you doing?
0: Thank you so much. What a great intro. I'm doing fantastic. I, I eat a lot of chocolate, so it's rare that I'm not feeling fantastic.
1: Well, that's the, the, the key to life is chocolate. Uh, how many pieces of chocolate is a half pound? Is that 10 Snickers bars? How much chocolate do I have to get to have a half pound?
0: I don't think I'd be able to eat 10 snicker bars. Um, I just cause, cause I quality is really paramount. Um, and maybe at a different po- point in my life, uh, maybe pre pre teenager, or like right around those years when my metabolism was just kicking and it didn't matter what I was eating. Uh, but I, I pretty much exclusively eat my, the chocolate that I make, uh, and those bars are 1.3 ounces, and I generally have about seven to I don't know, between six and eight or nine bars a day. And then I also make uh, this chocolate smoose. I mostly make it for my wife, but I like to have a jar with me most days. And then I'll have chocolate drinks. But it comes out it comes out to about a half a pound a day, and I've been doing that for 13 years. And, uh, my, my motivation behind it is that if I have about a half a pound a day, then in the course of a full year, I've eaten my body weight in chocolate, which feels alchemical and magical, and also a good, uh, an ode to the bean, so to say.
1: All right. Tell us about the business, Justin, what kind of chocolate are you selling?
0: So we coined the term botanical chocolate several years ago almost a decade maybe about a decade ago and uh, botanical chocolate is using chocolate as a delivery system because i noticed that people eat chocolate a lot i'm sure you've also noticed this i'm sure the audience i'm sure a lot of you guys have eaten chocolate today um already and when i was in my uh i was about 12 years old when i first had ginseng uh it was my first exposure to like a a medicinal plant or herb. Uh, and it, it blew my mind. I mean, it gave me so much energy. I thought I didn't have any, uh, like drug references or anything at that point in my life. I just knew I felt like Superman. And so I thought there's, there's gotta be other foods that make you feel this way. I think maybe, I don't think I had coffee. Yet. Maybe I'd sipped coffee, but you know, similar in that genre of like wine or coffee, uh, there are th- certain things we put in our body. And we feel really differently. And I got very attracted and very curious about healthy herbs, teas, flowers, adaptogens uh, that made you feel different. The only problem with that is that mostly they taste horrible. <laughs> so I would try and get people to eat these fantastic things I was learning about and researching. Um, but people didn't like eating it. And then I realized if I put it in chocolate... Then people would eat it, and chocolate happens to be a vasodilator, meaning that when you eat chocolate, your blood vessels open. So they make for a really great delivery system, and also make for more bioavailability when you're eating uh, when you're eating them. So it's kind of a match made in heaven. Also, how chocolate was used five hundred years ago, even four thousand years ago. This is how chocolate was used uh, more in a drink format, but. The, bar th- the bars seem to work really nicely and uh, easy for people to carry around with them. So we, we, we coined the term botanical chocolate and we started putting herbs and teas and flowers and uh, magical things into chocolate to get people to, uh, to be healthy without sacrificing the pleasure and deliciousness of, uh, of what your palate is meant to experience.
1: All right. I'm just sitting here imagining such a wonderful world where chocolate was good for you. And I'm just thinking, you know, if there was only chocolate that could make me just get really calm and blissful, that would be awesome. And then if there was another chocolate that offered amazing brain power, I'd I'd be all in for that. And then if there was another one for maybe like super endurance before a tennis match or something, though, that's like my utopia. Uh, of the world, what and
0: do you if think? if only it was possible? Those- if only it was possible, though i do I do kind of have this hunch that uh, maybe you have some psychic abilities because you've described so eloquently the um, the our three bestsellers, uh, which are the endurance, the bliss out, and the brain power uh, and And those do exactly what you're saying. you know, essentially, after doing uh, when I first started this venture. It wasn't, uh, I'm sure, you know, having a startup school, you give uh, a lot of entrepreneurs advice on how to start a business. I pretty much ignored everyone's advice in the beginning to, uh, um, you know, to kind of know what I was building or have like an end destination, a goal in mind. I was just in pure, uh, educational art project. What's possible in chocolate, very organic in my approach where I was just like, just trying it out and not sure. I didn't know what I was really building, or if it was just a hobby on the side. You know, for about two and a half years in the beginning, I was meeting with people, and um, I was, you know, basically, uh, I'd say, "Hey, Jim, um, well, what what's going on in your life?" You would tell me, "Hey, I'm training for a triathlon," or "I want to remember my dreams." or I'm having a digestive issue or I'm, I'm writing a book and I need to be really focused. And so I, I did about 50 of those custom chocolate batches where I would make you a 30 day supply of your very own chocolate, which was a very fun project. Also very labor intensive, not super cost effective, but I considered that my school. I mean, how to uh, find what herbs worked well together, both for flavor and for, for being effective. Um, and um yeah from from there we kind of narrowed it down or i narrowed it down i noticed people really want more energy in their body people have a hard time remembering names and ha- you know have that associative memory and people need to just chill out like people don't know how to let go and chill out so i made those three bars that's kind of our headliners and they just pretty much instantly became like best sellers very rare do people eat this chocolate and not like have their 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 minds blown, or just be really surprised that they're allowed to eat eat something that tastes good, and you have permission to eat that um, and uh, yeah it tastes good and it's good for you um, we We have a very high bar for quality uh, like even the chocolate that we're using um, is all wild harvested cacao, so that means that there's no farms and no plantations we work exclusively with 450 wild harvesters in Ecuador that go uh, about 60 to 70 different areas where there are wild groves and wild trees. And, uh, maybe there was like a farm, you know, 80, 90 years ago that was abandoned. Um, so that's, that's where we're getting our chocolate, which really makes for some of the most exquisite flavors and uh, they're just mature chocolate beans. It's not like your normal chocolate bars are, are just a few years old, maybe five years old, seven years old. How'd you get, These get that deal,
1: like, Justin? How'd that come about? Uh,
0: a really dear friend of mine in Los Angeles, I, this is where I was living when I I had the, the, uh, the download, the inspiration, the spark, the aha. I was in Los Angeles because it's the city where everyone's dreaming. And I thought it was a good place to go discover my dream. And, uh, one of my good friends there had an import company of superfoods uh, and he'd been at that for, for a few years when I met him. So, uh, his frustration was that when you import, uh, foods from other countries, it might say organic, it might say that it was third party tested, but oftentimes he would find that there were a lot of, um, either heavy metals or toxins or pesticide residue on on the foods that are supposed to be really healthy for you he ended up uh, it's a longer story I'll kind of spare that that story but he ended up selling his company uh, and taking that pile of cash down to Ecuador and the dollar definitely goes really far in Ecuador and he built what would be his dream scenario which is essentially a headquarters and a training facility for um, for people to, you know, people who didn't want to just be working in a farm and walking the same rows every day and also just living in the pesticides that they're spraying because over 99% of chocolate is sprayed with pesticides. So if you're working in that environment, um, it's it's not a great situation because even if you're getting, you know, fair wage Fair wages, you're getting paid, you know, fifteen percent above the national minimum or the the regional minimum wage, you're still poisoning yourself. So he wanted to remedy that by helping the community and also create a superior chocolate um or access. And he already had a lot of the ties here in the States and in Europe. Um and so he started exporting um uh, this very unique chocolate. It's, it's the rarest chocolate in the world. It's um I, I've never found anything quite like it.
1: And how did you integrate the science and the nutrition components and know how much to put in and know that it was safe and, you know, measure all of that stuff? How did the the recipes of science occur?
0: Should I tell you my secrets? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. I will reveal.
1: There's no one listening.
0: It's, it's self-testing mostly. Um, there are general guides, but most of what uh, we're working with are coming from pharmacopias. But did and, you have that um,
1: strange tick before you started the self-testing, Justin?
0: Yeah, I've always, I'm, I do. I just, it's just part of my makeup. I have a really deep curiosity for, um, I like to say I'll try anything twice. Cause the first time it may be a fluke. I'll try anything twice. Um, so the, the, the knowing how much to put in is very much through uh, like kinesiology or muscle testing or really just finding out what's the threshold. So uh, like all of the herbs, all of the ingredients that we use have guidelines um, or, you know, recipes, uh, formulas that have been used for, in some cases, hundreds or thousands of years if it comes to like Ayurvedic medicine you know essentially when i was doing the custom batches for people i would you know someone said i want to remember my dreams or i wanted more um virility i wanted to have uh more potency with my manhood or something like this i hope i can say that on the radio um there are there are different approaches so if i was a like an ayurvedic doctor from india i would approach it using specific herbs if i was a a medicine man in West Africa, I would approach it with different herbs. If I was a a Native American shaman or a South American shaman, those are different herbs. Same thing with the Pacific Islands, uh, Chinese medicine. There are the, they're, they're these old remedies that have existed uh, for thousands of years. And it's where we get a lot of the cues for in the pharmaceutical industry. Often they'll use uh, herbs and plants that have... Medicinal use, and they'll just extract the one part of it or a few parts of it that that are the "quote unquote" effective part. But I'm really more of a fan of using the entourage effect of the whole plant, um, and so just using the guides of what was there before me and standing on the shoulders of some, like some very um, some really brilliant minds who would cure people on the daily. Uh, I also. You know, funny enough too. my so my middle name is Frank and I'm named after my great grandfather on my paternal side who lived in what was what would now be the Czech Republic. But there was it was hungry back when that empire was reigning. And uh, he was the guy that you would go to if you couldn't go to the doctor, like maybe you'd go to him first and he would have an herbal remedy because he was really into that, which I thought was really fascinating that I just happened to get named after my great-grandfather and then I that have similar you know, interests.
2: Totally. You
0: know? We have a similar chin. I've seen pictures of him and I think, oh, there's something to that. Something. <laughs> Must
1: be, yes. The chin never lies.
0: Hopefully not. Oh, nice. Alright, so... You know, on that cue, can I just interject for just a moment, Jim? Please, please. Um, we don't want to get off topic are, or anything, but keep going. No, I mean, I think when you're talking about chocolate, you can. There's a wide range of of topics that that enter. Uh, there are some interesting theories that I've read because I read a lot on um, you know where chocolate came from, what's the origin, uh, and it's generally believed to be the northern Amazon, or really right around in Ecuador, and then like that that basin, and, and up in north of South America. And then it migrated a long time ago also into Central America. There's a lot of Central American cultures that feel like it came from there first, but it's in that general zone. And a lot of these cultures have origin stories of... Um, aliens and of beings that were these large beings that would come you know that were their deities in a way or that came and gifted uh different crops like corn for example and cacao chocolate is one of those uh that was uh, that at least some legends point to as being uh, a gift from the gods Ch- uh, chocolate is called theobroma cacao it's latin name so it's food of the gods. So there's a little link there. And, um, so that's part of the origin story of chocolate is these, um, these extraterrestrial origins. And I also think, listen, if you were going to come to someone's house or you're going to, to a, um, a planet or whatever, then it would be a, a good thing to bring chocolate. That's just a polite thing to do you're from the South. Sense. You, yes. you know, so it just, to me, it's just, I just go with what, with what ma- makes sense with what resonates. So that I nodded to that theory. I like that one.
1: So do you believe in
0: aliens? Justin I mean, whether I believe Frank? in them, whether I believe in them or not, uh, I'm pretty sure they're here. I think they're among us. Well,
1: then why um, I think they, a lot
0: of them are friendly.
1: Why aren't I've they, had some, you know, like saying, Hey, here we are.
0: I don't know if it's, um, This is, uh, you know, I don't know if it's really a hospitable environment to come out and say, hey, I'm an alien. We're still working on our uh, compassion as a human race.
1: Is the government orchestrating all of this? Are we having so many uh, congressional hearings on the topic because it's part of the overall big plan?
0: Well, I'm a fan of the... uh, of etymology and how word how words are coming together and government means to control the mind government um so maybe sounds kind of right but i can't say uh that i know anything for certainty i like to stay in the curiosity of things and not jump to conclusions wherever i can that's my policy don't jump to conclusions entertain lots of people's um perspectives. And, you know, just, I have, I have my thoughts and I'm, I'm also just available for them to change with a great argument.
1: So you've done the research. You didn't die from your own concoctions. Now, what do you do? How do you sell bar number one? You sold to your wife. How do you sell bar number 100? How did you get out there and start marketing the product and, and developing a market? And so, well, first of all, I want the answer to that, but how, how big is the company so far? I mean, have you sold a hundred? Have you sold a thousand? Have you sold a a million? I mean, how, where are we, Justin?
0: Where are we? (laughs) Um, I have personally handed probably close to 70, 75,000 people chocolate. Um, I like to get out there. I'm an extrovert. I, I started doing the custom batches and then I switched into doing farmer's markets. I got a lot of exposure there. The first client that I had for chocolate was a connection, uh, through a friend. So, you know, it's a friend of a friend. Often how businesses get their first step is through one, you know, first or second degree connections. And uh, a friend of mine who was a, a massage therapist and then also, um, he used to work on Olympic athletes doing, uh, deep tissue stretching. So both for rehab and for, uh, well, just for, for generally expanding the, the performance of athletes. And then he moved into doing, um, you know, just more general massage and some very, some actually some really cool trippy stuff through massage, um, energetically. But he had a client that was dealing with a stomach issue where she, she wasn't able to have a bowel movement. Uh, unassisted. So she would, for something like six years or something, um, was unable to have a movement. So she would take over the counter laxatives and she would go see doctors. And he said, you know, I think you need to go see the chocolate shaman. This is before I was called the minister of chocolate. And I, I you know, I just nod and I laugh at the names and I just go with it. And, uh, so we set up a, like a 45 minute conversation and she she was telling me about her issues, and I said, "You know, it, it sounds like this is much deeper than physical." Um, you know, w- what's your relationship? What's your relationship like with your parents? And you know, I like to maybe just lean into the Freudian for just a second. And uh, she said, "Oh, my parents are very strict." And I heard my bloodline is constricted. And I said, "Oh, I think you have toxins in your blood that aren't allowing peristalsis, so your body doesn't know when it." can let go. So I'm going to make you a blood cleansing chocolate instead of a laxative chocolate. And we'll see where it goes. Four or five days later, she was fine. Um, she was great actually. Cause she was, uh, resolved, resolved it. So when your first client is a success story like that, which I still get the goosebumps when I think about how, how, powerful that experience was. For me, knowing that chocolate could actually be the future of medicine or a delivery system for people for their healing, but then too, to help this, this friend of a friend out. Um, so uh, having a, an origin story like that made it really easy to get customers, uh, both on the custom side. And then also when we started doing farmer's markets, it seemed to have a very magnetic quality. Um, then we went into stores um got into about hundred and sixty stores around How'd you get into so those? I would just walk into them. My my wife and I had like a hundred percent track record. Actually, no. There was one store that we walked into and our charm was met with um uh, a wall of What's I don't even know. How to describe your it. Is not there, What's your ratio when your
1: wife is not there, Justin? What's your close ratio when your wife is not there?
0: i i I'd like to say that it's not as good, but i I can't not do it like I went into a little boutique in San Francisco the other day, so in other words, you eat where,
1: and you can sell it
0: i'm I'm really more of the the sales side of things. She's got the follow through and the customer relationship piece, so we would open it together and then she would handhold, and you know she would remember the store managers, children's names, and she would just, she just took copious notes and was just generally interested in the people we were working with, which that human to human contact, as we grew bigger, became more difficult. And also, um, you know, there, there was a point at which we were in about 160 stores, a lot of mom and pop stores, a lot of smaller grocery stores, but then a lot of We had some, some chains that were anywhere from maybe seven to eight locations, maybe one that had nine locations. And, um, we just got to this point and we, and then we had just had our first child and I thought, wow, uh, if I do this really well, I'm not going to be able to spend very much time with my, with my child or if we have more children, which we have at this point, uh, we're. We're, we're not, I'm just going to miss out on these very, um these amazing pivotal first years. And I don't want to do that. I didn't start a business so that it could be a slave to it. And so in the end of 2019, I actually just sent an email out to all of our stores and I said, Hey, we've loved working with you guys. We are transitioning to a direct to consumer model online to preserve both margins and to see where that takes us, we might come back to the wholesale and to the retail space, but for now, this is the best move for our company. We were met with a lot of great response to that. You know, like we'll miss you. It's been a pleasure. I really, it was a great feedback loop to um, to know that we had caretaken our relationships well. Um, and then uh, I switched to an online model at the end of 2019, which was just in time for all of the shutdowns and people ordering chocolate direct to their house and oh, not wanting to yeah. go to the stores. And, uh, I'm going to credit my, my intuition on that one. And just, I think I was just fed up with, uh, not taking advantage of the internet, uh, which we had a little bit, but, uh, now we're about 99% of our sales are online and we do events and we do pop ups and I'm just starting to get back into the farmer's market. So, uh, I think a little later on this fall, we'll, uh, start popping into our Santa Cruz, um, farmer's markets with some tents. And, um, my son already promised that he was going to help me sell chocolate, which is great. Cause he's about to turn five and he's, I think he's very charming. It's going to work out well.
1: That is a charming age. Justin, it's an amazing story. Congratulations. And I love learning how you did it. It's just really well done. So, oh, uh, well done. Well played, my friend. And
0: Thank uh, you. It's, it's a living story. You know, stay tuned. And uh, I'm still, I don't know where this journey is going to take us. We just keep on selling more and more chocolate. And I, I think it's an educationally leveraged product. So the more people learn about the herbs and the different things that we put into the chocolate, and our approach and everything's very hand done, handmade. Um, and also, uh, we always put a lot of, uh, a lot of yes into our chocolate. and the company is called yes. Cacao. So we have a whole doctrine of yes, uh, where we genuinely, genuinely, and generally want to help people put a positive spin on their day and, uh, turn lemons into lemonade and such.
1: How do we find out more and buy some yescacao.com, right?
0: that's the best way to go y-e-s-c-a-c-a-o.com you can feel free to drop us a, a note there and uh, sign up for our newsletter you get 20 percent off your first order uh, i would say um i would just tell people to get a variety pack because the the bars flavor wise are each of them are very different and very unique uh and i think you'll find yourself surprised at what your palate tells you also make a wish. Before you take bites, because that makes the whole experience much better.
1: Ooh, interesting tip. Justin, thank you so much for being with us and congratulations. It's a great story.
0: Bless you. Yes, you. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day. And to the audience, thanks for tuning in.
1: And we will be right back. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce my next guest live from a skyscraper high in New York city, please welcome Robert coat to the show. He is the founder and CEO of coat capital. It's the world's leading IP legal and investing organization, 25 years of experience, identifying, valuing, and investing in breakthrough IP tech. In all sorts of different industries, he has created something called the IP capital model, which is a better way to invest and scale the organizations. And it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, I love anything that's counterintuitive. He says the best way to protect it is to give it away. If it, if you set it free and it comes back, it wanted to be your intellectual property, I guess. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: Uh, very good, Jim, and uh, it's, uh, it's actually Cody, like Wild Bill Cody, uh, for those people who like American history. I am sorry, I got it wrong. C-O-T-E. No C-O-T-E, yeah, a little French name that uh, we Americanized, uh, and uh, it's Cody. Uh, so, uh, great to be on the show, Jim. Uh, great introduction, by the way. Oh, thank you.
1: I am also a French bastardization name. I was a Beauchamp, and that, of course, became Beach,
2: Ah, uh, well, I was Cote and, uh, it uh, became Cody because, uh, what I do for a living and helping young companies grow and protect what they have, their breakthrough innovations. Um, you know, the, the name Cody, uh, uh has, uh, has more of a ring to it uh, than Cote. So whatever, that, whatever that's for
1: So did I get the paradox, right? You want to give away to protect
2: Yes, uh, I want to give away to protect,
1: but go ahead. No, you explain it. Defend.
2: Well, it's a paradox because I spent my, my life uh, protecting companies that built industries in America, created prosperity in the country, all, almost all exclusively on the hardware side of the house. We spend most of our time today, venture capital focused on software, but the empire is built on, on hardware. And what you'll learn is, uh, if we want to go back to planes, trains, and automobiles, we shared those technologies around the world. And not only did we build uh, a great economy in this country, but by learning to share what we had, we've reaped the benefits of a, of a global population that can get value. So by creating value for others, you actually create value for yourself. So the more you can help others, the more you can help yourself. And the art is protecting it. And what you learn is By sharing your technology in a protected way, in a controlled way, you can grow the top line, reap more value for more people in more places around the world. And that actually, believe it or not, is a deterrent. Uh, When you have something breakthrough that really delivers value, medicine, new drug treatment, new technology, uh, like what's driving AI today, things that can bring transformative change to the world, Uh, that have tremendous value people will either find a way to copy it if they can't get access to it or they will develop an alternative and so if you can share your technology and you have the right protection mechanisms around doing that you'll not only grow your business faster with less risk you'll have more value in the world I like to say be of service to humanity and in the end you'll actually be protecting your technology you'll deter people from copying And you'll deter people from independent development so that all that hard work that it took to reach market with your new product that implements that breakthrough innovation, all that hard work and all that money, you can actually reap a return. You've got what I like to call a de facto monopoly, a de facto moat around your, your yard, around your business that gives you enough durability over enough years to have made the journey worthwhile And that's how you protect. If you hold that diamond in your pocket, you stunt your growth, you increase your risk. uh, Not only that your business will fail because it's not creating enough value quickly enough for your investors, but that others will look to copy it or independently develop to take advantage of the value prop. So, Robert, you and
1: I are old enough to remember that Apple failed before it took over the world. That. When it was just a computer company, it had to be saved by Microsoft, right? That, uh, the original race, well, I guess there's two original races, VHS versus Betamax and Apple versus the IBM open model PC running a Microsoft operating system. And those, that was the battle PC versus Mac and PC was open And a billion different companies made them. You had Dell's and HP's, but they all ran Microsoft. And then Apple. And Apple was in a world by itself, and they kind of lost that battle, uh, I think is a safe thing to say. They ended up with a minuscule market share for desktops. Of course, now the story has changed now that they've taken over the world. Is that an example of what you're talking about
2: well, I think you gave two great examples. Uh, they do go back a long time ago, and, and they are really great examples. So I'll take up the, uh, the, the beta which is VHS. And what I'll say there actually applies to both. Um, so sharing uh, is not only caring, it's, it's a way to protect what you have and, and create value. And the faster you can share access to your technology the quicker you will grow and the more likely it is that your technology will become the de facto standard. So in the case of VHS versus Betamax, uh, Betamax was actually the superior technology, but it lost the race to VHS because VHS was scaled more quickly. It was shared more quickly. And again, this is not building a business to be a a charity. It's a profit-making business that knows that if I have enough of a value proposition, Speed to market and speed in scaling that business will matter more than anything. Even the best will lose out to the rest if the rest is willing to share and scale more quickly. And then for your IBM versus uh, Apple, same concept. Apple, of course, has turned that around and they've been able to build an ecosystem today uh, that is proprietary Uh, in a developer community that allows them to actually maintain that, I'll call it monopoly power. Uh, In the case of IBM, they won the race on the desktop, not the phone uh, like Apple has today, but they won the race on the desktop because IBM built a platform uh, that uh, was more accessible, more quickly to more people. Uh, And uh, we see that with the smartphone. BlackBerry died out because BlackBerry was challenged by phones that developers were developing cool apps for. And the more developers that gravitated to these two platforms, Apple and, of course, Android, the less attractive that BlackBerry that once was, as a killer app, an email machine, right, that we all love, it lost the ultimate race to own that smartphone market. So there's a lot of, a lot of wisdom and understanding that sharing and developing a community, developing an audience... Uh, whether it's a radio show or it's a product of any kind that you're selling uh, and doing it as quickly as you can in a way that protects what you have is in and of itself a way to protect what you have and ensure your success long-term.
1: So now let's turn toward, I guess, the bulk of your business, the the startups. We've been talking macro. Let's go micro. I invent... Uh. I don't know. Do, is the example better if it's a game changer, Robert, or an incremental product?
2: We, I think, we ought to talk about a game changer, and okay. uh, we can we can compare that to an incremental product. Uh, I can either give you an example if you want. I,
1: well, let me have my example first and then we'll go with yours. Sure. I invented a sunscreen for your roof and it makes your roof or you spray it on your roof and it, your roof is not as hot anymore and it keeps your house 18 degrees cooler.
2: Is Correct. That a bad example. Uh, no, I mean, it doesn't matter as long as let's just say it, it uh, it's a game changer in terms of the energy in the building uh, that the building needs to consume. And it effectively makes, um, apartment buildings for people to be housed much more affordable than otherwise would be
1: possible. There you go. There you go. That's it.
2: So, so the question would be, how do you want to protect that? How do you want to share that? Well, Um, I I heard
1: on a crazy radio interview that you did that you're willing just to give that technology away that your advice is I should just take my patent and publish it online.
2: So, not give it away because that would be a charity and giving it away means you're losing your ability to get a reward. I'm talking about licensing that technology and not holding it close to the vest. Instead of trying to build corporate stores, let's do what the retail chains have shown us, right? Let's come up with a business model that has value. Let's figure out how to replicate that and go out and franchise many ventures or many people to take advantage of the technology. And so I not only build my business where it's profit optimized, maybe I focus on certain major cities and I build my own buildings and I coat my own buildings because I am going to own all the residential retail properties in that city that bring the cost of owning a, or renting a property down by half. And I might decide that if I go out into the country into smaller midsize sized uh communities that it's not going to generate enough revenue and enough profitability and it's going to require too much capital and too much risk because i gotta hire all that manpower and i gotta manage all that manpower so i'm going to go ahead in every small town and village and small city license people like me who are in the real estate business to go ahead and build their own buildings with this coding and bring the cost of housing down And I'm gonna benefit humanity, not only in building a business myself that I can profit from in delivering a value prop that's not otherwise available elsewhere in the big cities, but in the small cities, the towns and communities, I'm not gonna stand still and let them suffer without that technology, the benefits that could be transformative. As we know, housing around the world is a big deal, right? Affordable housing is a big deal. Uh, we have an undersupply of housing. So now all of a sudden, and we have high price for housing. And so if we can do anything to bring disruptive change there, we want to spread that benefit. So what do I do? Well, I franchise that business model. I go ahead and license the technology not just the rights that protect it, the patents, trade secrets. I actually license the technology, maybe the brands that go with it, that people trust, right? They know that roof coated with that brand is the real deal, I'll call it. And now I'm actually building a business that isn't one venture limited by one team with the capital that one team can muster for a business plan in the big cities. But now all of a sudden I turn one venture into many ventures. And I think of that, that technology, that IP, is like real property, except that property can go anywhere in the world and create value, and it can create new ventures. So from one venture and one piece of property, I can create many ventures, taking advantage of that property in many places, not only in this nation, but around the world, where I can reap the benefits, either in a royalty, collected on revenue with toll, like they do today in infrastructure projects, bridges, roads, tunnels, uh, I can enter into a joint venture to help support the development of the project and actually participate in that revenue directly and or profit distribution. So when you think about fundamental IP, breakthrough IP, again, which is just a synonym for technology, don't confuse it with the rights like patents, trade secrets, copyrights that protect it. Know it is technology. That's what you hear many, uh, you know, many reports on China stealing our IP. When they talk about IP, they're talking about our technology, and, of course, they're infringing on our rights, property rights. But I want you to appreciate that if we share and look at a venture that has fundamental IP, if we share that IP, we can turn the one into many, right? Spread the risk. I'm no longer wedded. Right. Right. So the one team and the one business model and the one plan and the limited capital and the limited manpower. If I can get smart about how to license and protect that technology, I can infinitely increase the potential for my business to be successful. Not only for me, who has to go through the school of hard knocks, as you know, to get uh, to the finish line, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but for my investors who believed in me, right? And so, IP as an investment thesis trumps venture capital, betting on the team only, and the business plan of that team all day long, every day. And that's kind of the point I think that comes across just with your simple example of, how do I transform housing with this new technology? Do I hold that diamond in my pocket or do I share it? So what's your favorite example? Oh, I have uh, probably my most favorite example is one that is, there's probably two of them, but I'm going to give one in the interest of time. And uh, it's technology called PCR, polymerase chain reaction. And we know PCR because during COVID, we all had to take that test if we wanted to travel anywhere. And it was a pain in the proverbial butt, right? And so we had to take it. But the reason many required it is it actually can detect the DNA for the virus in the body. That technology won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry over 20 years ago. And I had the good fortune of investing in that and actually helping it scale it uh, worldwide. And the company that that, that developed it uh, actually, and commercialized it was called Perkin Elmer, became uh, a spin out called Applied Biosystems. And what they did was they made a conscious choice. I've got this technology that will allow people to see DNA in the body for the first time. Couldn't see it otherwise. Could guess at it, you could look at markers that would suggest you have a virus or a disease, but you couldn't see it. And so this technology actually amplifies any DNA sequence in the body and turns the needle into a million copies so the needle becomes the haystack, and you have enough of a signal, a bright enough signal to see that sequence is there and you can identify a sequence for a virus in the body and know that COVID is there or any virus, any disease and now you can start to engineer genetic treatments to help save lives. None of that would be possible without PCR but the important point is that that company made a conscious decision early on to share their technology with the world. They realized, as I I mentioned earlier, that if they built a business and they had limited capital, there's only so much tolerance venture capital has for early stage companies to take risk. Typically a rifle shot, build a a business where uh, you can uh, build that first corporate store, come back for money to build the next store. They realized though, that if they could focus where they thought they could be most effective and have a profit-optimized business, uh, that would be great, but they'd be limiting their growth. And more importantly, they were gravely concerned that somebody would copy what they have globally uh, and they would lose the advantage or somebody would independently develop the technology, spend lots of money and time wasted. Uh, Often, uh, many of these efforts go nowhere But if you've already got something that works, that will create, and this did become one of the fundamental tools that created the biotech industry, you can uh, bring value that saves lives to people around the world if you license it. So that's what they did. They created from their one venture, many franchisees, many companies around the world that knew their markets, that wanted to get into business and selling what's called the thermal cycle, the equipment. Uh, that does the pcr process and then the enzymes that catalyze it to create this amplification of any dna sequence you're looking for in the body and they built a big business where they own 30 percent of the market uh, where it was best for them to own it and where they wanted to take the risk and spend the money and build out the team and they allowed many others around the world Uh, and of course they had to protect what they had you can't just simply hand it over because Unfortunately, uh, around the world, uh, people rationalize all kinds of conduct and greed gets in the way, uh, and um, especially when you're saving lives. And the reality is, investing in something like they did that was so transformative, we have to make sure that people like that that have the courage to take that risk get compensated. We can't just simply uh, give it away, but... We can give it in a way that allows so many more businesses to thrive, not only creating jobs but then having the, the benefits beyond that for humanity in saving lives, which is what the biotech industry does today. Robert, what
1: should I expect my license percentages to be? You know, I invented this product and I spent three million dollars to get it to where it is now, and you know it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars in my mind, if not billions of dollars. And I'm thinking I deserve 80%. You know, uh, what do you think I deserve? No, you're gonna come back silly, me. like 4% or 1% or, <laughs> you're like a crazy man. You, you understand where I am though? You understand what I'm my game?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, it's funny when you have a diamond in your pocket, um, you overvalue that diamond not because you're you're being irrational right it may have that nominal value it's kind of like the list price on a car but what you underestimate is the manpower and the capital and the risk of bringing something new that requires people to adopt it right it takes time right takes challenge and so you underestimate um Uh, how easy it will be to bring something new to the world. Often there's a tipping point, to use a Malcolm Gladwell book title and premise, and that is enough momentum has to be built before something goes viral. And it's in those early days that things can go wrong and businesses can fail, regardless of how great the technology is. So you need to, I like to say, sober up and and recognize uh, that that's the list price and realize that um, by building the top line and sharing and having many more people create value with this technology without you uh, having uh, to invoke yourself in capital and manpower or take the risk, um, you're not only helping the world but you're reaping a share of that benefit that otherwise you wouldn't gain uh, if you were maintaining that list price. So I like to tell people I never move or walk into a negotiation about anything with the old school premise of I need to buy low and sell high. It should always be about value. And so value is the way I'd answer your question. What is the value that this technology will create for you as the joint venture partner with me, the technology developer, or you, the licensee, if it's going to be simply a transfer of the technology and you completely run with the ball yourself with some oversight for me? new technology, new revs, et cetera, uh, but mostly you're running with a a business. So we need to be looking at what is the value being contributed by us, the technology developer, uh, and essentially it comes down to am I going to develop a business and what will be the profits of that business and how much of those profits should be attributed to me as the developer of the technology and how much of that profitability should be attributed to you, and I'd say that's a multi-variant, multi-factor equation that throws out the window, buy low and sell high, and gets sober or rational about the various risks that each party is taking, the various contributions each party is making, and if people can have a conversation around value, there's always a result that makes sense, and uh, building that business and sharing around the world will always make up for uh, any Any variance uh, in what might have been the right number, uh, it will always do that. That's been my experience.
1: Great information, Robert. How do we find out more, follow online, and continue to learn from you?
2: So I have taken this premise, and uh, for 20 years, I've been investing in IP. Uh, generated about $3 billion of returns. Uh, uh, PCR was one of my programs. The wireless in your phone was another. Smart cars, new generation electric motors. And what I I did uh, several years ago was go out and actually uh, decide to help many more companies grow. I focus on the hardware side of the house, not software. Companies building physical products based on breakthrough innovation. All the great software in the world won't help you without the right hardware. A great example is the AI revolution today is enabled by two chips, the GPU, that's a piece of hardware, and the DPU that handles all the data traffic that when you're dealing with billions of devices would choke the GPUs and the data centers doing all this work. And so I focus in areas where it's hard to raise capital today, because venture capital is focused heavily on software since the dot-com bust, and so if you want to learn more about what I'm doing, uh, I call it IP capital. Again, we, we care about the engine in the car, the actual tech, uh, not just the venture, the team and the business plan. We want to share the innovations for the reasons we've talked about. We build businesses bigger, faster with uh, more value uh, for for the owners as well as the investors. And that essentially begins to recognize that a business is more than its venture. And if it's breakthrough, that asset, that piece of property can create value wherever it goes. So we call it IP Capital. You can learn more about it at uh, our website, www.cotecapital.com. You can go to my website, Robert Cody, uh, C-O-T-E, my uh, LinkedIn profile. I have many different videos. You can learn how we do it, the kinds of things we've done, our track record. And I welcome uh, uh, those out there who want to join in my mission to uh, help many, many more hardware companies, physical product companies get in the game. It's very, very challenging. The big Oaks, the big companies buy them up. And Aqua hires today, it's very hard for them to get venture capital. That's why I've created IP capital. I know how important it is to pay attention to the other side of the house, the hardware, not just the software. And I know that the empire... That is, the light that shines on this world, the United States of America, was created by planes, trains, and automobiles, building things, manufacturing things here. And I'm on a mission to make sure that we uh, we rebuild that base in America that for 20 years has been offshore. So that's it. Any, any other questions for me?
1: We're out of time, Robert. We need to run. And thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff. We are out of time for today, but back tomorrow. Be safe. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.